also uploaded it Thank you. onto that's the great. J Drive. So it should be fine. J Drive, that's what my sister calls me. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Not Safe for Publication, a podcast about the lightest side of humanities research. I'm Anna. I'm Jess, and with us today is George. Hello. Um, do you want to tell us a bit about your research, George? Yeah, I'm not sure I can do the lighter side of research, really. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I am um, a fourth year now American Studies PhD student, um, and I look at occupation tactics in the urban United States in 1960, from the 1963 to 1978. And it's all about how occupation and writing as a form of occupation can be used to contest the state. Amazing. Why 1963? Uh, it's, it's really weird. I, like, I've literally today settled on 1963. Okay. Uh, so like, I technically, like the first chapter starts in 1966 with the Black Panthers. Okay. Um, but then the second chapter jumps back to 1963 because I know the second chapter is like the underground press and there's, a, there's one really good example Ooh. of the underground press Sorry. and it's called... Am I allowed to swear on this? Yeah. yeah. Alright. Well, this is a title anyway. So there's a really good example of the underground press in New York from 1963 called Fuck You, a magazine of the arts. Okay. And it's really good at like placemaking and subversion and stuff like that. So it then jumps back to that and then it goes from there to 1968 and then to 1978. So... How did you come to be doing this research? Uh, I don't know really. It's like a, it's really weird. There's loads of different things. Um, so initially, I started getting really into kind of spatial studies in at the end of my undergrad, and it was like I did a dissertation of undergrad on psychedelics and rural landscapes. The title of which I was really proud of because I called it landscaped, but I capitalised the L, the S, and the D. Uh, they didn't like it very much but you know it is what it is so I got really into spatial stuff then and then when I started my masters I started getting really into urban space and I was really into the kind of counterculture period and it like as I was doing this spatial stuff my kind of politics were developing in a certain way and became quite heavily anti-state and so this is where we've ended up we've ended up looking at um, kind of liberationary movements and how they contest the state mm. So how much do you feel your politics is influencing your research? Oh, it, that's, it, that's just it. It's straight in there. I, like, I know a lot of people, may, maybe of older generations of academics than us, are very much like, you should stay detached and it should be kind of rigorous and factual and stuff. Mm. But no, I don't, I, you know, I'm not in for that at all. I think if you believe in something, you, it, it, should, it should affect, the, I mean, it affects what you look at anyway, it affects what you're interested in, right? And I think... Scholarship and academia can be act of activism. There's a limited way in which you can do that, but you should be standing witness to a lot of these things, and you should be everything should be critical. You should be challenging as much as you can, and you know, re- really good research I think does that. I think if you're not, I think that's the difference. When I did my Erasmus in France, they weren't critical, so a lot of their content of the courses was just not political at all. I'm not saying it has to be like super political, but it was just purely empirical. Mm-hmm. And then when you start to be critical, then you have to be, you can't be critical without being political. Yeah. And, I think, and anyway. like the university is a political space, right? You're the classroom right. is a political space. Mm. The work that we do occupies a political space. And to be distanced from that and to sit and say, oh no, you should just be purely objective is like really privileged, right? It's, we're in this space where actually we're not affected by a lot of these things. 
And it, so it'd be nice and easy for me to just sit there and say, oh yeah, well this group did this and this group did that without any kind of analysis as to why that was happening and what the kind of state's role in. I mean, a lot of my stuff, the reason I say it's like, you know, it's not the light side of academia is because like, there's just a lot of police and state brutality that gives rise to these things. And, you know, this is happening. You know, I'm looking at it in the 60s and 70s, but it hasn't stopped. If anything, it's gotten worse. And to ignore that is, is you know, kind of doing doing a disservice, I think. Yeah, uh, that's something that I very much thought when we were um, in my masters because I wasn't. Uh -huh. our, um, we were reading Collingwood, mm -hmm. uh, and who is among those historians who would say you have to be completely detached from the events that you're looking at, and history shouldn't be emotional. And I thought, well, a what about history of emotions? Mm -hmm. um, and, and secondly, like, well, what does it mean? that we pretend that we don't have our own opinions or unconscious bias. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Even if you're not intending to yeah. be political, you're being political, right? And, you know, it, it's, it's all well and good to say that if you're separated from stuff. And, you know, a lot of the stuff that I'm writing about I haven't experienced personally, but some of it I have. Some of it I know people who, you know, things mm -hmm. that I haven't mm -hmm. been affected by, other people have been affected by, and to ignore the fact that this is, these were real people Right, real people being murdered, real people being hurt, real people resisting and struggling and fighting. It's if if you just ignore that fact, then then you, you're kind of almost de dehumanizing people and depersonalizing mm. what's happened. And that's exactly what, in my analysis, exactly what the state wants you to do, is to just look at people as statistics or figures, and then you know, like diminishing them away from this kind of active personal response. Mm. You've um you've mentioned Black Panthers, but who else are you looking at? Um, so the first chapter is on the Black Panthers. Um, the second chapter is on the, some some New York underground press publications. The first one is Fuck You, a magazine of the arts, which was edited by a guy called Ed Sanders. Um, and then the second one is called um, Rat, which is subtitled Subterranean News. The third chapter picks up immediately where that one leaves off because Rat was occupied by a women's collective. Um, and they changed the name to Women's Liberation and they capitalised the R, the A and the T in Liberation, so it was like <laughs> Women's Rat. And then the third, uh, the fourth chapter, oh, and sorry, the third chapter also looks at um, Black and Third World Women's Liberation uh, movements as well, because mm -hmm. they're, they're very critical of yeah. what we, I suppose, what we call the White Women's Liberation movement. And then the fourth chapter is, um, it's kind of the Gay Liberation Front, but it's mainly like, I had to look at Stonewall because it's a massive example mm. of occupation happening in in the period, and so I'm looking at um, Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera. They were part of what a group called Star, which was street transvestite action revolutionary, and they're incredible. And they were there. I mean, it's it's like whether it's apocryphal or not. Like they were both there during the Stonewall riots. But there's an mm. apocryphal thing that Marsha P. Johnson threw the first Molotov or threw the first brick during the Stonewall uprising. And so I move on from them to then a guy called John Reshi, who was a writer and um, he would call himself a hustler. Okay. He was he was a sex worker, but his, his relationship with it is really strange insofar as his whole thing, he, lots of his books are about him hustling, but he sees it as a revolutionary act, which, you know, which, I'm, which I totally believe that it is. Um, a lot of the time he's hustling and not charging, he's doing it for his own, like entirely for his own gratification rather than with a financial benefit as well. The thing with John Reshi, um, he, yeah, he, um, he wrote, the book that I look at is called The Sexual Outlaw, which he wrote and published in 1977. And in it, I think I've not actually counted 
but he's along the lines of having se some form of sexual contact with about 50 or 60 men in three days yeah. as a revolutionary thing and it's a lot about fighting the police and stuff but prior to that he had written a book called Numbers which was again about this sexual odyssey in LA and he's the, the character in it who's kind of loosely autobiographical is obsessed with having sex with a hundred men in a shorter period as he can so right. this is that's giving you a kind of little flavour of what John Rashi's doing that's cool so that's just in the era before on the brink of before AIDS, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And so this is like, it's a really, it's kind of, it's not something that I go on to, it's something that I mention in the conclusion, but it's not something that I look at specifically because obviously it's, it's prior to the first reported AIDS cases, AIDS and HIV cases. But there's this kind of, for him, it's a liberationary, revolutionary, radical thing to be having, mm. like just for men to be having sex with each other, full stop. He tends to do it a lot in public. Like? Oh, subways, parks, people's garages, disused laundry rooms. <laughs> uh, where else? The, the, I tell you what, the most unusual place. He he has this section in the middle of in the middle of the book, or kind of in the second third of the book, where he is in Griffith Park in Los Angeles, and he's having sex with this guy during a police raid of the park. The police are there to round up gay men. And mm. they have sex under a flying helicopter that's hovering above them. Right. As a kind of like middle finger. <laughs> yeah. Maybe not a middle finger, but a middle something to the police. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so that's, that's probably underneath an active police surveillance helicopter. Have you found this sort of stuff um, that are you, do you think that you're kind of the only person researched? Because a lot of your stuff is so underground. Mm -hmm. Are you finding that a lot of the stuff that you're coming across? And, few people have written it from your perspective or um, really? I mean with the Reshi stuff there's not much out there about Reshi um, and it's, it's it's kind of exciting being the first person to subject his work to this kind of analysis like to put it into perspective I went to a conference two years ago I think and it was a queer studies conference and I was talking about Reshi and this guy he was like an older academic and he was a bit of an arsehole mm. like he didn't ask the question nicely but I thought it was quite a good anecdote he was like he put he was the first one to put his hand up at the end of the talk and he's like before he asked his question you know because he's a man and yeah. this is what this is what we do <laughs> right we, yeah, we have a comment first and he was like oh it's just an in it's just interesting to note that like this book that you're subjecting to a kind of rigorous literary analysis is a book that I bought as pornography under the counter in 1977 okay so like very few people are looking at that obviously loads of people have looked at the Panthers and loads of people have looked at mm. the women's liberation movement but one of the things that I'm doing that other people aren't is using this lens of occupation it's like people haven't people have looked at the spatial side of the Panthers and they've looked at the spatial side of the women's liberation movement but never through this lens of occupation and what it's doing and especially not their writing as a form of occupation mm. I guess what's interesting is that you're putting together strands which might seemingly be disparate and uh, and what some people might see as potentially quite problematic in terms of comparing different kind of isolated groups and then trying to find a commonality between them, which I think is quite important. Well, this too. is it, and like this one of the things, like I, me and my partner were talking about this the other day, is like where are we making our original contributions? And what I love, what I said to her is like I've built in loads of levels of redundancy. So like, if someone just in case someone has written about the Panthers and occupation, no one's written about the Panthers and occupation and the gay liberation movement together, or like no yeah. one seems, I can't find anyone that's grouped these movements together. And well, the reason I've done it this way is because the Panthers 
I'm positioning them like they were the vanguard movement of this period, right? They were the ones that were kind of right on the front lines, at least until the early 70s. And all the criticism recognizes this. Yeah. And so I'm not deviating from that. They were the ones that kind of pioneered these occupation mm -hmm. tactics. And so it's looking at them. And then actually it just it just so happens that these other groups are all consciously, often consciously, but sometimes unconsciously, making use of the Panthers' tactics and rhetoric and ideology um, to do similar things. Each of them has their own understanding of occupation, but everyone is kind of following in the Panthers' footsteps. That's interesting. Mm. How much are those groups are aware of those similarities? Is there kind of a conscious decision of this is how you protest, kind of idea of this is what our strategies are, mm -hmm. or is there kind of disparate, but this is these ideas are in the air, so. So, I mean, the Panthers, right, the Panthers get together in 66, which is obviously just after the civil rights movement, right, and there's like, um, the first use of the term black power, if I, I'm trying to remember my dates now, I think is, is Stokely Carmichael in like 1963 or 1964, right? And so civil rights begins this transformation in in and around, because it, it, it arguably, in inverted commas, achieves its end, right? The Civil Rights Act mm. is signed in 1964 and then the Equal right. Voting Act is signed in 1965. The Civil Rights Act has arguably done what it set out to do, mm. except obviously the situation is still terrible, right? As it is now. Yeah. Nothing has really changed. And, you know, as someone coming out of an anarchist perspective, having the vote doesn't actually mean anything, mm. right? It has a symbolic meaning and that shouldn't be, that shouldn't be denied. Um, and it was, you know, a struggle absolutely worth fighting for. But, the, the, but this, this, the situation starts to change. Huge, huge race riots are breaking out in this period. The Watts riots, which is what I'm writing, which I was literally have just come from writing about, which is what I opened the thesis with, is 19, August 1965. Biggest riots the US have ever seen. Um, and this is after the passage of the, the Voting Act, right? Mm -hmm. So there's obviously still massive discontent, there's still massive problems. And so the Panthers come along and they start to, and other black power groups start to define these issues and the Panthers talk about it in terms of like, of black people in the US being an internal colony, that they're a, a unified but geographically disparate nation who are being internally colonized, right? And this is the idea the Panthers really run with. Other groups have, have kind of talked about it, the mm. Panthers start acting on it. And then other groups, and this, this then ties up with the anti-war movement because the Panthers compare themselves course, to the struggle yeah. in Vietnam. And this ain't like, so the, the US troops in Vietnam are the equivalent to the police forces in black communities in the US. And the, the Panthers refer to them as an invading and occupying force all the time. And other groups who are involved in the anti-war movement start to pick up on this rhetoric, and that's really, really obvious in the underground press. They follow in the Panthers' footsteps almost directly and are constantly covering the Panthers and constantly trying to kind of emulate and live up to these tactics. So the idea of it kind of, it is in the air, because lots of groups were kind of moving towards it at the same time, but the Panthers kind of defined, and this is why we call them a vanguard movement, they mm -hmm. defined the rhetoric and they defined the kinds of struggle that people were undergoing. Yeah. From a British perspective, yes. been talking about. I've been looking at a recent occupation. I was wondering if you knew anything about how those, I were in relation to those kind of transatlantic mm -hmm. communication, whether you could enlighten me on whether there was that much kind of global discussion about occupation. Well, I mean, so my the original when I started my thesis originally looked at New York and London. Oh, right. And then I read the Reshi and I was like, because I thought it was a New York book and it wasn't. And I was like, this is too good not to include. I have to do LA now. 
and then I was doing the London stuff and it just wasn't for the stuff that I was looking at it was it was like less radical in inverted commas right it wasn't because so with, with the queer stuff particularly with the gay male stuff particularly the passage of the um oh god the name the Wolfenden report yeah is it the Wolfenden report yeah, yeah, yeah. Is it the Wolfenden report yeah mm -hmm. doesn't it kind of somewhat decriminalizes men having sex with each other right you can if you're over to it both part both participants are over 21 and it's in a public space private, private space, space sorry yeah. then it's fine and so that seems to suck the life out of a lot of the everyone not everyone but a, but a number of people are like oh well that's fine we'll just go and you know we'll just go and do it here it becomes less revolutionary in terms of the black panthers um there's a lot of there's a lot of kind of interchange there was mm -hmm. a british black panthers party um which and like this is another thing and i suppose is more relevant to your research mm -hmm. and it's, it's certainly true of the panthers in the u.s as well as the uk is the membership of both parties so in the US the membership was two-thirds women but you wouldn't know that based on the kind of leadership of the party mm. right the only woman in any position of real power or influence was Kathleen Cleaver Eldridge Cleaver's partner yeah. and she was communications secretary right and that's you know that's important mm. but like it's not it doesn't reflect the membership and this the case was certain I, as far as i can recall the case was certainly true in the uk as well yeah and that's how you started seeing from the late 70s women starting exactly. off their own uh, black, black so you have organizations. I mean, like i forget what they were called now i was looking into them for a while organization the of women of, of the black organization the, of women yeah, of african and Asian descent it, yeah oh yeah. what yeah and their, their archives at the british library which is really really good mm. they've got like an oral history project they and did not too yes, long yeah, ago yes right? yeah exactly but then occupation in terms of occupations in the uk the mangrove nine trial oh yeah that's mm. a really really temporary small occupation right but then so was stonewall it was like a minor thing that happened one night that had a disproportionately large effect right so the mangrove nine case was the police trying to if i'm remembering this correctly and not confusing it with something else was the police trying to storm the restaurant ultimately yeah. right and mm -hmm. then everyone was throwing bottles and bricks and yeah and, and glasses and records i think out of the police trying to keep mm. them out and so that that's I would consider my, my methodology would consider that to be an act of occupation, however temporary it was. Yeah. Thinking more about kind of your research process, mm -hmm. especially since quite a few of the pieces of primary information that you're working with seem to be quite upsetting and sensitive. Mm -hmm. How do you deal with it? How does this affect you? Um, I mean, I'm really lucky, right, insofar as, so, like, in terms of myself as a person, I'm not really an oppressed person in any way. I'm working class, right, but that doesn't really come through because I'm in a non-working class space. I, I, you know, I have a queer identity, but I mask and I have a, a cis female partner, so that's, that's invisible, right? Other than that, I'm a white man, right? I have unreserved, you know, untapped emo um, reserves of emotional labour. <laughs> you know, if you work with what you've got, right? And so, in terms of what I was saying earlier on about, like, you know, you have to take things on and you have to invest in these things personally, right? I can, I can afford to do that because I'm not in danger all the time, right? This stuff, I don't have to go out onto the street and be aware of the, where the police are. Hmm. Um, but I do read about it a lot. And so one of the things I can do is try and take on those struggles as much as I can. And rather than being kind of a performative ally, is what can I actually do to contribute to these things? And this is one way in which you can do that. Um, but one of the things that, really, that I really struggled with at first was, um, are these my stories to be telling, right? Um, you know, two of the four movements, the underground press and the gay male stuff, I feel like I could talk about with some with some degree of like, all right, this is the, the these are people that I can relate to and with, I can I represent me. That is not the case with the Black Panthers and the women's liberation. 
Um, and so my question was, uh, is it my place to be telling these stories at all? And so the conclusion I've ended up coming to is the department here in Manchester is reflective of a lot of departments in the UK, which is there are no people of colour in the English and American Studies department here, unless they've hired someone that I don't know about. There's no one. And so mm -hmm. if, if I shy away from speaking about it, then I'm actually contributing to the silences of black voices in this space. But the way around that for me was then to sit there and say, well, actually, I have to let these groups speak for themselves. I cannot impose stories. And so yeah. I really make a conscious effort. So with the Black Panthers, I, I, the, my two major sources are Bobby Seale, who was the party chairman. Bobby mm -hmm. Seale wrote a memoir called Seize the Time. So I use that, let it speak for itself. And then the rest of it, the, the second half of the chapter is all about the Black Panther newspaper. So again, that's oh, cool. the voice of the party speaking yeah. for itself. And I make real conscious efforts to make sure that I am not saying this is what the Panthers were doing. Yeah. It's letting the Panthers speak for themselves. And the same with the women's, hopefully the same with the women's liberation movement as well. That whole idea of like... Um, it, is it my story to tell? I think I ask myself that every day because I look at a lot of black women's groups mm -hmm. in the UK and it's, it's this idea that if you don't if you don't do it, then you're continuing that process whereby white people don't feel they need to look at those stories, which perpetuates that marginalization of those mm -hmm. narratives. So you, like you say, you've got to just, I think, you know, you have every kind of, it's really important that you look at these things, but yeah, yeah just nurturing those texts and making sure that you're not overanalyzing them. Yeah, like it has to be done, make but them it has super to be flowery. done properly, right? This could be said that they're feeling this like, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Do you have any funny stories from your research that you um, want to share with us? So you, you sent me this earlier on, and I was like, do <laughs> yeah, I have I any didn't funny want to, like, Shanghai. I was like, oh, police brutality is not funny, and the oppression of women is not funny, and all these different things. So I was like, so actually, rather than that, there's, like, a funny story about me being able to go and do my research. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Any, any story. Right, that's yeah. fine. So what happened was, I, I, during my, in my first year, end of my first year, I won a fellowship to go out to the US for a month to oh, go cool. to the Lilly Library, which is in Bloomington, Indiana, the Indiana University of Bloomington. And the reason I was going is, is they had like original copies of Ed Sanders's Fuck You, a magazine of the arts. And they had an access to this like huge collection of underground press texts, including basically every issue of the Black Panther. And I was like, at this point, I was like, oh, that's great. It's really, really useful. I'm going to go out there. And then I found out they also have the Kinsey Sex Institute there, right? Which Amazing. is really, really cool. And they've got like a queer archive as well. But in between getting the fellowship, so I got the fellowship just after Trump was elected. And this is when the Muslim ban starts happening. Oh, yeah. And like things are getting really politically sensitive at the border. Now, I've been to America three times in my life. I've been searched every single time, held up at the border and searched every single time. And that was before my like social media got particularly anti-state, <laughs> anti-US, critical of the police, blah blah blah. And I was like, right, this is this might be an this might be a problem. And it didn't really occur to me as I was flying in until I was literally on the plane on the way in, and I'm like, they're going to ask me why I'm here, and like I'll say research, and they'll say, what are you researching? I can't say, oh, I'm looking for examples of how the Black Panthers were fighting the police and how they were trying to take over cities and doing this and doing that. Mm. So I was like, right, I'm gonna have to kind of come up with something on the spot. And I get to Homeland Security and the guy's standing there and he's like, hello, sir, what is your, why, why are you coming to the US? And I'm in Chicago O'Hare at this point. And I'm like, I'm here on research. Where are you going? I'm going to Bloomington, Indiana. 
what is it that you're researching? And I'm like, right, how do I get around this without being rejected from the country, mm. but also not technically lying as well, because yeah. that might come back and bite me. And I was like, I've got two things I'm here to look at. One is the Black Panther archive, basically. And two is the Kinsey Sex Institute and men having sex with men. And I was like, which is going to make this guy more uncomfortable? Yeah. And Elaine just going to stop asking me questions. And I was like, I'm not going to go in hard to start with. I'm just going to kind of, I'm like, oh, so I'm here to go to the Kinsey Sex Institute. He's like, what, what's that? And I was like, oh, you know, it's a history of sexuality and blah, blah, blah. And it's about, you know, queer people. And he was like, oh. And he was like, so what is it particularly that you're looking at? And I was like, are you sure you want me to tell you? <laughs> He's like, yeah, yeah, you need to know for my job. And I was like, well... You know, to be blunt about it, I'm here to look at um, instances of men having sex with men in public. He was just like, go ahead, I don't want to talk to you anymore. That was my way in. Because also you don't want to be like, not stay true to your beliefs Exactly. As well. I, didn't, I didn't want to kind of compromise myself in front of this tool of the state, right? I didn't yeah. want to do that. Um, but equally, I was like, I kind of have to be here. Like, I don't want to get kicked out because I'm not going to be able to get back in. What is it about security guards that just scare the living <laughs> shit out of you, I guess? <laughs> I just wanted to make it awkward for him yeah, you know? and I was no, like, if, if it's awkward then he's just going to let me go he's not going to keep pressing me on this because mm. then I can just start getting really graphic about it yeah so I go into like fisting and stuff like that I mean there is, there is some of that <laughs> I'm sure there is <laughs> <laughs> any questions? no unless there is anything that you would like to share and you would like to be on it so I also, um, back last last year, yeah, it was this time last year, mm -hmm. um, I set up the State Violence Research Network and we had our first conference earlier on this year, which was really great. And we're having another one. The deadline for the call for papers this year is uh, the 1st of December uh, and the conference is being held here in Manchester in April. So if you're interested, if any you do anything related to state violence, yeah. and that is a broad category as far as we concern it, uh, as far as we consider it, sorry, uh, go to, I can't remember the website, now stateviolenceresearchnetwork.co.uk and you can find the call for papers there yeah that sounds amazing thank you very much for coming my pleasure thank you for having me thank you Jess for co-hosting thank you and thank you to all of you for listening don't tell your supervisors what you heard here what happens on the podcast stays on the podcast Not Safe for Publication is a podcast made by and for humanities researchers at the University of Manchester if you want to get in touch with us you can find us on Twitter at NSFP podcast or get in touch with us by email at nsfppodcast at gmail.com Our intro and outro music is Hat the Jazz by Twin Musicon.